welcome to another episode of Finding the Glitter in the Gold, a Lord of the Rings Middle-Earth chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And we are talking about the works of John Ronald Rayul Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was writing in the Middle-Earth universe from uh, 1937, that was when he published his first book and he was 45, up until his death in 1973. And in that entire time span, he still had not made an internally consistent narrative. So any little uh, discrepancies between what we say and the books themselves is kind of in keeping with the spirit of things where we're all just making shit up as we go along. Today, we're going to be talking about a question that I hadn't even really considered until a couple of chance hosts brought it to my attention. The question is, did the Bagginses fail? And this could be taken in a couple directions. And Moore says something about what Tolkien's priorities were with writing his stories or translating his stories, as he liked to think of it. And it says a lot about where he was coming from in terms of morality and what interested him. So um, I'm going to dive into this with something a little lighter first and also start with the first Baggins uh, and his story in The Hobbit. Again, I'm bringing the perspective of somebody who only watched the movies, which uh, we generally agree are not as great as the book. <laughs> I still am um, muttering in disbelief because The Hobbit is so simple. But anyway. Yeah, so this is from a series of tweets made by Anthony Oliveira at Maya Koopa on Twitter. It was posted by xenosanalytic.tumblr.com. And I'm going to read just kind of uh, what he had to say here. This was posted in response to, I think, probably the like 80th anniversary of The Hobbit. Um, and he says, Bilbo Baggins is a shy, sweet little muffin who gets conked on the head and misses the loud, dumb climax of his own adventure. God bless Tolkien. The Hobbit movies were doomed as soon as they failed to realize The Hobbit is like the Zeppo of fantasy. Bilbo misses the important stuff. The ultimate joke of which is compounded by the sequel's revelation that he accidentally pocketed the most powerful weapon in Arda. If I directed The Hobbit, all the battle sequences would have been out of focus while Bilbo ate a sandwich in the foreground. <laughs> we are literally introduced to Bilbo while a huge fantasy heist is being plotted, but he's too busy making sure they don't break his dishes. Tolkien, this song, four pages. Muscle bear cooking breakfast? That's a chapter. Climactic battle? Fuck it, hero is knocked unconscious. Tolkien is profoundly disinterested in war, except as a backdrop for men to love each other as fumblingly as they can manage. Which I think is actually a super interesting idea in terms of his own moral views on war and what he may have taken from being in, surviving in two of them. Yes. So yes, Hannah, you did ask, how does The Hobbit actually end? Um, and Bilbo does in fact get knocked unconscious. I mean, that's not the end of the book. No, but he doesn't see the entire war. He literally is on the edge of the mountain. He has just gotten, like, ran back up the tunnel out of Smog's lair. Uh, and he is trying to not get caught by the goblins. And a rock falls on his head as he is saying, look, the eagles are coming. Oh, my God. So eagles and the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Yes, the eagles and Bjorn, the man who can turn into a bear comes and helps as well. The bear man who can cook breakfast? Yes. Is he single? Yes, yes. Interesting. 
I am very amused by the image of all of this. And I really wish that this Anthony Oliveira had been able to direct The Hobbit just so that we could get all of the focus on only what Bilbo cares about. And The Hobbit took totally different directions and it brought in the Silmarillion shit and it had Gandalf go to a thing and you got to see what Gandalf did and whatever. But the narrow focus on this hero who is not interested in being a typical fantasy hero and participating in the war and having an active part in this heist planning, he will do what they tell him to do, but he's not interested in knowing the details of it really. I love that. The idea that he's pretty much just food motivated and what gets him to leave the Shire actually? Curiosity. Um, so he, so they have the entire, like we're singing, we're drinking, we're eating. Hey, you want to come uh, on this quest with us? You're going to be our burglar. Here's the contract. Um, and Bilbo looks at the contract and is reading it. And he's like, okay, I'll make a one fourteenth of the treasure. Cool. Sounds good. Um, oh, the company is not liable for uh, any injury or death or incineration? And Boffer goes, yeah, because we're going after a dragon. And Bilbo's like, oh, okay. Think of like a big accordion that breathes fire and has wings. And Bilbo's like, yeah, not helping. <laughs> yeah, so, so he might just, might just burn you up. Yeah, no. And then Bilbo passes out, literally just passes out. And wakes up the next day to a clean kitchen and a note saying, we've left, bye, um, meet us here if you want to join us. And he looks at his clock and he's like, shit, that's like five minutes and a 15 minute run. And so he starts running. He just grabs his stuff, doesn't even think about it, and runs out the door and then finds them. And they're like, you're late. We thought you weren't coming. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to come. And they're like, here, sign this contract. So he signs the contract to be the burglar. That's incredible. And they only want him because Gandalf said he's pretty small, so he'll fit small places and we can get him in there. Gandalf believed in him. Gandalf was sent here with like a very specific and yet very general mission. And he trusted in the hobbits and we love him for this. Well, he, he has learned that hobbits are always stronger than they seem they are. Like ants. Like ants. Yeah. These tweets kind of highlighted for me how Tolkien focused on some very specific details and then left some other huge topics untouched, mostly around the wars and the battle scenes and stuff like that. I want to know, like, how how detailed did he get with these fights? Well, in the big the big battle scene, he doesn't go into a ton of detail. Um, it, Bilbo wakes up takes off the ring because he's been invisible the whole time, which is why no one found him. Oh, no. Um, and Gandalf basically just tells him how it ended. So it basically just means that Tolkien doesn't have to write a giant, huge battle scene, um, which he ends up doing in Lord of the Rings several times. He committed to it then? Yeah, because there was the Battle of Helm's Deep, and there was the Battle of Pelennor Fields, and there was other, you know, skirmishes throughout that he went far more detailed than any in The Hobbit. Um... The last one in front of the gates of Mordor, is that a, is that anything? Yeah, in front of the Moranon. Um, yeah, it wasn't as big, was it? Mm, like the focus at that point was about the fact that Frodo had thrown the ring into the fire and so right on time everything explodes and they don't have to go into a big giant fight. Frodo didn't really throw the ring. We'll get there. We'll you get on correct. that one. That's the next uh, He did not throw it. Gandalf doesn't, uh, sorry, Tolkien doesn't really t- 
go into the battle in detail, he actually focuses more on the fact that Thorn um, has been mortally wounded and apologizes to Bilbo. Uh, he apologizes for his greed, basically, and says that if more people valued food and cheer and song in the world, then the world would be a better place before passing away. Because Thorn and Bilbo were kind of always at odds. I am starting to kind of piece together some parallels. And again, I don't know how accurate this is because I haven't read the books, but um, kind of that feeling of there's someone who's the secondary character who would make a better hero for these, but Tolkien isn't interested in that. Like you have Thorin in this first book and he's he's like a tortured prince and um, has a lot of feelings about fighting this dragon and like starts this whole war off and everything and has great ambitions for his people. And uh, instead we focus on Bilbo Baggins. And then in the Lord of the Rings, we have Aragorn, who's again, like a kind of a, a bit less tortured, but fairly tortured hero who's not interested in the throne, but has a kind of a rough upbringing and is very competent at fighting and um, getting people to go along with him. He has a lot of charisma. He's uh, a good speaker. He's educated. Uh, he knows the elves. He's very good at forging these alliances and he's going to be a great leader, but we don't focus on him. We follow Frodo. I don't know if that would be Aragorn and Thorn necessarily. Like their characters are very different. Thorn will go for anything at all costs. Like he is, he has greed, which is a theme in the Lord of the Rings as well. Is this idea of greed and what it means to be greedy and how that is your downfall? Well, so I guess there is that parallel in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, but Aragorn does not have the same greed. Um, he is far more selfless. Like he doesn't even want to take on the kingship. I mean, I kind of am just doing it because they both seem like destined to rule. Like they have that kind of, um, you know, just that that joint destiny where it's like you're going to be responsible for a great number of people and they feel that weight. And I think that the way that the movies portrayed them too kind of makes me draw that parallel because they're kind of like hot, scruffy dudes. <laughs> they're both hot and scruffy. Wearing black, kind of grim. I mean... Thorin is way more grim than Aragorn. Aragorn can, like, smoke and party, but <laughs> I don't know. I guess I just draw those parallels because they they seem very, like, brooding at times. Yes, they both are. And in contrast, you get the hobbits who are very, like, focused on goals and extremely um, loyal and determined people, but they're also about the finer things in life and the finer things in life to them are basically like food and drink and friends. Or maybe like the, the simpler thing. Yeah. Like throughout the Hobbit, Bilbo is always like, why am I not back at Bag End with my nice chair and some pipe weed? Like that's all he wants. He doesn't care about the treasure. He doesn't see the value in it. He just wants to sit in his chair. Like he is there for his friends. He does not abandon the quest. Yeah. And I mean, he accomplishes goals both Bilbo and Frodo both accomplish what they set out to do they're just not they're not driven by glory they're very brave people and they're very determined but they don't aspire to much and Tolkien portrays that as a, an applaudable trait because they are the heroes of these stories yeah and it's kind of a take on 
Tolkien's view of heroism and what the ultimate goal is of these grand quests. It's, it's not the throne for these guys. It's the job that has to be done. I would, I would say for Frodo, for the hobbits, it's saving the Shire. The, pr- the protection of a home then, yeah. But for Bilbo, that's the thing, is Bilbo doesn't really have anything to gain out of it except for one-fourteenth of the treasure found, but we know that that isn't really what drives him. For him, it was, he just wanted to go on an adventure. Yeah, it's these very simple motivations. Yeah. And I wonder about that, because I I don't know what fantasy was like before this. I just think of, like, myths and sagas and things like that, and it was usually for glory like what heroes were setting out to do, the people that were sung about, the stories that were told were about people who had very grand aspirations, perhaps. Well, and like Sam said, like I always thought that it was, you know, some great quest and great things that were going to happen, but but really it's just about the fact that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. In the end, it's nothing more than that. It might seem like it's this bigger, grandiose thing, but again, it becomes a question of good versus evil and what do you cherish? I suppose I'm trying to draw some like great parallels where Tolkien was uh, writing about mundane people and mundane goals for the first time, but I don't think that's true. I'm thinking more on it. And I'm like, no, there have kind of always been stories about people who were thrust into situations that were out of their depth, but they had to do it anyway, or they followed a path just because they were curious and ended up on some grand adventure. So I guess he's writing in a fairly standard tradition. So maybe that's the point. Like for him being in World War One, and talking about how the batsmen were the actual heroes of the war because they did all this behind the scenes work. Like soldiers, they're just common people that have to do heroic things in some cases to save the life of their fellow soldiers or they're in charge of soldiers. And like in the end, we're, we're all kind of mundane people until we're thrust into these situations that demand the best of us. And then it's a question of, do we live up to that or do we not live up to that? Yeah, that's a great segue into the discussion of uh, Frodo, then, as the hero of Lord of the Rings. Or anti-hero. Or just a, a guy in a situation that he's kind of over his head. And it's funny how it was all set up by Bilbo, too. Bilbo succeeded in his quest, but he also brought the ring out and it was a thing that the ring didn't anticipate because the the movies at least portrayed the ring as something that has some sort of malevolent consciousness and wants to be found and escaped from Gollum and then was picked up accidentally by uh, Bilbo so he foiled the ring's plans without even knowing that he was yeah so he he was double successful but it also meant that he pushed this off onto the next generation which is Frodo so Frodo's on his quest and everything and um i don't know the the ending of the movie shocked me the first time i saw it because it looks like frodo failed even though the outcome was successful frodo himself didn't throw the ring into the mount doom fires he was forced into it by Gollum who bit his damn finger off which was very scary <laughs> and spat it in there and, and then Gollum just tripped and fell in and it's kind of one of the, again one of those kind of anticlimactic climaxes where he didn't even just trip Frodo actually attacked him because he wanted the ring back true so he was very much under the thrall of this ring yes 
And it's a parallel with Isildur, where Isildur didn't throw the ring in the fires either. Correct. All of this, this entire scene as it happens, where it looks like a character has been consumed by evil and gone to the dark side and failed at their quest because they didn't do the pure and right thing of chucking the fucking ring into the <laughs> hell pit. All of this is an alignment with, or with the way that Tolkien views good and evil. So this is in, from an essay by mapsburg.tumblr.com, who I highly recommend checking out because their Lord of the Rings meta is delicious. And we are going to be talking about some of their stuff later because uh, they put together some really fascinating ideas. And I, I, I love their whole blog. I'm very excited. But Mapsburg puts out there that one of Tolkien's key themes is the Augustinian view of evil. Most genre of fiction takes a nation view of evil, a view that holds that evil and good are two great opposing forces in the world. So the, the word Manetian, and I do not know if we are saying that right, is from a major religion that was founded by the Persian prophet Mani around 250 CE. It has a dualistic cosmology describing the struggle between a good spiritual world of light and an evil material world of darkness. Through an ongoing process that takes place in human history, light is gradually removed from the world of matter and returned to the world of light once it came. So the views of this belief were based on Mesopotamian religious movements and it thrived between the third and seventh centuries CE. And it was one of the most widespread religions in the world briefly. It actually rivaled uh, Christianity for a brief period before Islam uh, appeared and became the next kind of, I don't know, religious competitor. <laughs> and it spread as far east as China and as far west as the Roman Empire and survived in Ch South China until about the 14th century CE, which is kind of cool. I'd never heard of it before, but it is kind of the standard view of the world in terms of fiction. There is good and there is evil. And Tolkien instead has ascribed to the Augustinian view of evil in his books where according to St. Augustine, evil is not a force on its own, but it is the absence or corruption of good. In The Lord of the Rings, you see this in the idea that Morgoth and Sauron can't create anything on their own, but can only corrupt and warp what has been created by others. An Augustinian climax can't involve a contest of wills between good and evil. Evil must be given an opportunity to destroy itself, and good wins by renouncing evil, not overcoming it. Uh, it's kind of appropriate that this was a view that was espoused by St. Augustine, who was uh, Augustine of Hippo, and he converted to Catholicism after a very horny youth. Um, he had a prayer, grant me chastity and continence or sexual abstinence, but not yet. <laughs> but he converted to Christianity when he was 31, and he preached extensively and published a lot of papers on morality. Um, he made it to 75. He was living around the same time as uh, a nation and was kind of in direct contrast to that and responding with his views. And so the climax of Lord of the Rings takes place on Mount Doom and we get to see that the ring isn't destroyed because Frodo's force of good overcame the ring's evil, nor is Gollum's intervention a coincidence or a deus ex machina. The very corruption of Gollum that enabled the ring to escape the river uh, back when he was Spiegel and he strangled his friend and all that, it drove Gollum to wrestle desperately with Frodo for the ring and ultimately fall to his doom, ring in hand. A Monachaean world is consequentialist, so the outcome is what matters. It doesn't matter how you get there, but the outcome, if it is good, 
means that the action, like you're a good person. Um, and so in order to defeat the forces of evil, you have to think strategically. Sometimes you even have to do some short-term evil in order to achieve a greater good. But an Augustinian worldview doesn't allow that kind of pragmatism. In an Augustinian world, any compromise with evil can only strengthen it, giving it an infusion of good that delays its self-destruction. An Augustinian world demands a deontological ethic, which means that doing you do the right thing regardless of the outcome. And I was reading an article about Gandalf and it said the same thing about Gandalf and how he approaches problems, that he will do the right thing no matter what, because it is the right thing to do. He will say the right thing, even though if it's hard to hear, because it's the right thing to say, to be honest in that moment. So even the characters of Lord of the Rings inhabit this worldview, this Augustinian worldview. It's kind of that, like, uh, I play a lot of D&D and I'm thinking lawful good. Yeah. Where lawful good actions sometimes look kind of naive or it looks stupid that you did them in the first place um but it's because you yourself are acting in a way that you believe is good and it doesn't matter what the outcome is you're going to do the right thing that's the deontological perspective and we see that in lord of the rings where you see people strategically pursuing the greater good and it fails and then people who remain true to their moral principles succeed even when it looks foolish in the process. So it's Saruman and Denethor versus Aragorn and Gandalf. Saruman and Denethor put aside in this moment morality for the end goal of the end justifies the means, whereas Gandalf and Aragorn were like, no, we have to do what is right in this moment. Yeah, Mapsburg has a couple of examples that they present. Like you said, Saruman and Denethor, they're both people who have a palantir and interact with that and um, try to use it to do good and are corrupted by it. Anytime you give evil a chance, it will corrupt and warp good. And then on the other side, you get Aragorn, who's does the extremely lawful good thing of following Merry and Pippin who've been taken by orcs because he knows Sam and Frodo are okay. They're in that boat heading out and uh, these other two hobbits are in big, big danger. So he's going to go save them. And even though that looks stupid and they run for three days and um, arrive kind of too late and have to switch their whole mission, it does take them to a place where they need to be. They need to meet the Rohirrim. That's how they end up reunited with Gandalf. Yes. So doing the good thing, even if it looked ridiculous, because obviously Frodo should be the priority, getting him to Mount Doom. But no, they're going to pursue these two hobbits who are in danger and save them. And even if they don't succeed at that, they still get to a place where they need to be at the right time. And then the most glaring and powerful example in Lord of the Rings of doing the right thing despite the consequences is Frodo himself where he refuses to kill Gollum. Both Sam and Faramir tell him that killing Gollum would have been a good idea. And you see that in the movies. And I feel like every time I rewatch the movies, we're all like, just kill him, just do it. But we can't do that because that's not a good thing. Killing someone is never the right thing to do. And Bilbo didn't, Bilbo could have killed Gollum, but pity also, state his hand. Yeah. And it's sad that it's also 
pity that does this too. It's, they don't say it's, it's the wrong thing to do. It's more like this is a pitiable person who isn't worth killing. So maybe it's not that killing people is wrong. It's that killing defenseless people who have been corrupted and it's kind of not their fault that they're like this is the wrong thing to do. I think another word for pity is also is mercy. Showing someone mercy, even when they don't necessarily deserve it, is almost a kingly trait, right? Like that is like looking for the mercy of the king, looking for somebody's mercy is to have fallen to a pretty deep level and still be granted a chance. Tolkien wrote this in a letter, number 246. He argues that people tend to forget that strange element in the world that we call pity or mercy, which is also an absolute requirement in moral judgment. Uh, Oh, he continues, in its highest exercise, it belongs to God. For finite judges of imperfect knowledge, it must lead to the use of two different scales of morality. To ourselves, we must present the absolute ideal without compromise, for we do not know our own limits of natural strength or grace. And if we do not aim at the highest, we shall certainly fall short of the utmost that we could achieve. I do not think that Frodo was a moral failure because he showed mercy. Tolkien said it himself. He did. Even in spite of him not being the hero that you necessarily wanted to see, like throwing that ring into the pit, like, oh, this ring's been ruining my damn life for so long and the lives of so many others, back to hell with you. He doesn't do that. It, it, was, it would be impossible for him to have succeeded. And he, he did that. He made that choice of like after exhaustion, starvation, this long, long, long quest, having the power of the ring constantly eat at you, like it would be impossible to have succeeded. But it was this other choice that he made ages ago because he had mercy, because he knew that he could not judge Gollum because he had never been in his shoes. He had not lived through his situation. And who's to say that Frodo would not have been turned out exactly as Gollum if he hadn't been put into those circumstances. So he showed mercy because he couldn't pass judgment. And that's what saved the world. However, if Frodo was not a moral failure, he still was technically a failure. In what way? He did not do the action of throwing the ring into a fire and it's not like he didn't kill Gollum thinking, oh, hey, this is going to be the little guy that saves the world. I better keep him alive. I mean, Gandalf did say that he might have a part to play, but it's not like they could see into the future. So if Gollum had not have been there, he would have kept the ring. In some ways, it was luck as much as mercy. But the point that I think that Tolkien is trying to make isn't so much about the luck as about the mercy. Yeah. Luck and mercy, and in this way, Frodo both failed and didn't fail. Well, can you separate moral from the quest? Like, he was sent on a quest to take the ring to the fires of Mount Doom and destroy it, which he did not. He got it to the fires of Mount Doom, but he did not destroy it. But the moral side of this is separate from the actual quest itself. It's hard because the actions are good, but the outcome was bad, which is the opposite of dissemination kind of morality, where the outcome would have been good, but the actions to get there would have been bad. Well, it's what you want, right? 
like that it almost feels simple and obvious because that's how everything ends. And so you want that sense of black and white, of clarity, of yes, he is a good person, a good character. He did the right thing, but you're robbed of that. And in this way, it's almost Tolkien being like, hey, hey, even our hero isn't perfect. Like, remember, you too are a mundane human and you are imperfect. And you cannot judge this dude because you may not have been able to throw the ring in the fire either. So it's almost a reminder that things aren't as simple as we would like them to be. I think it's interesting because, I mean, that's the end of the movie. Like, there's like five fucking endings to the movie, but that's the big one is like, here's the outcome of the quest. But in the books, they have a whole extra quest after that where they've got to get fucking Saruman out of their Shire. Yep. Good old Sharky. And so how does it play in that sense where it's like, here's this moral quandary where this person did everything right, failed their quest, but the outcome still was good. And then you got to go back to the Shire and knife a guy. And the, that to me sounds black and white. Well, on the, on the other hand, when they go back to the Shire and everything is kind of industrialized and a lot of people who stood up to Saruman are put into this jail, you have some of the hobbits who have switched sides and gone to Saruman's side. And then you have some of the hobbits. Frodo hates the Sackville Bagginses. But it turns out that one of them stood up to Saruman and is now in jail. You could just leave her in jail. Oh, I don't like you. But no, now they have to fight to redeem the entirety of the Shire, including the hobbits who weren't so great because they're still part of the Shire. It's like how in the movie and then in the book, this happens at a different time. It happens at the end, but they extend forgiveness to Grima Wormtongue because even though Grima did decide to try and join the the bad side the evil side they realize that he still had a good person within him and again that forgiveness or mercy could maybe change the fate of that man grima doesn't accept it yeah the presentation of it is what makes them good people yeah the moral implications of one's choices are what's important that you do in that moment what is right does Grimer, Grimer doesn't stab him in the book. He does. He stabs him in the back. And then Grima is killed by a bunch of hobbits with bows and arrows. Because, of course, Merry and Pippin arm the hobbits and they fight. Well, there you have it. Again, another example of evil being the seed of its own corruption and destruction. It did end up destroying itself. Yeah, it... It's frustrating to see that because you're like, so much evil could have been prevented by doing a bad act, but that's not the Augustinian way. No. You got to do good even when you're very much tortured by it later. Well, because in the end, we don't know the future. So why sacrifice one's morality for a future that might happen when we don't know if that's going to be what happens? It looks like naivete on the outside, but it, it's kind of just having a lot of faith in other people's ability to change or the world to right itself. It's a lot of faith. I mean, granted, it is written by a Christian saint, but that's a lot of faith. 
thought you were talking about Tolkien for a second. And I was like, no, he's not a saint. No, Augustine. I got there. It just took me a second. I was like, wait, he was, he was sainted. I wish. He didn't have a knighthood, did he? He did not. One thing I find interesting about Tolkien in that letter, and to go back to the entire faith-based more idea of Augustinian morals, is that when he's talking about pity or mercy, and he's saying that mercy is an absolute requirement in moral judgment, parentheses, since it is present in the divine nature, end parenthesis, and divine and nature are both capitalized. That says to me that there's a large amount of religious faith playing into Tolkien's narrative and Tolkien's ideas as well. I mean, that makes sense. I'm not surprised per se when religion impacts stories and morals and narratives, but it's not the first thing my mind goes to in terms of basing my judgments or my choices or my morals. And I don't think that's a bad thing. As another atheist, uh, I'm like, yeah, it's fine. But um, yeah, the divine nature thing is interesting that he brings that up and that that was on his mind when he was writing these was the quality of mercy is uh, important in the Christian view of a God who forgives and loves you no matter what and all that kind of stuff. Especially since there isn't a ton of, uh, to my knowledge, this could be something to research, a ton of religions or religiousness in Lord of the Rings. Like, the creation of the world is by the one god, Iluvatar, and there's the spirits who are powerful, and which Gandalf is one of them. But then beyond that, it's not like you hear about people praying. The elves talk about Iluvatar and Elendil, and they talk about these figures of legend, but they don't talk about gods as much. The hobbits don't have a religion they pray to. You don't hear Aragorn muttering, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before he goes into battle. Like, there actually isn't many religious references. They have some rituals that feel mm, important. I mean, mostly around burials, because, like, there's a lot of dead people in these books. But they don't call on any particular gods. It's more like our ancestors are watching over these people. Or, like, when they're sending Boromir down the Anduin in the boat, they make up a song about the, the four winds. East wind, west wind, south wind, north wind, heralding Boromir's death to Gondor. So there's there is some anthropomorphic like, personification. There is some anthropomorphism happening. Well, I'm glad we answered the question of if Frodo and Bilbo Baggins failed. They definitely failed at being heroes, but they did not, you know, doom the world entirely. Which is good. Which is excellent. So glad Middle-earth survived the Baggins. I'd be very, very sad if it hadn't. That would have been a big bummer of a story to read as a kid, huh? I kind of wouldn't actually have put that past Tolkien. Read a big bummer of a story? Yeah. He was a sad war man, I suppose. Anyway, thank you all for joining us for Finding the Glitter and the Golds. Um, so you can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public. Uh, check us out on anchor.fm backslash finding dash the dash glitter. 
and uh, if you would be so kind as to like us, rate us, uh, write a review, subscribe to us, whatever the podcasting thing allows you to do, that would be nice. Um, yeah, right now I think we know everybody who's listening to it. So thanks y'all for listening. We love you very much. <laughs> we will see you on the Shire side.